Welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. I'm Oshita Moore. And I'm Jer Swigert. Join us as we grow our imaginations for joining God and others in mending divides. Fear runs deep, spreading like a virus. Hate is cheap. From afar it costs you nothing. Sister, take my hand. Brother, we will stand. Open up. Hey friends, Jer here. Oshita will be back with me next episode. Today, I'm in conversation with Reverend Ben McBride, author of Troubling the Waters, dear friend and conspirator in the work of peace. We recorded this special conversation on MLK Junior Day using Dr. King's legacy as a springboard for our discussion. Friends, this conversation captures the essence of what global immersion is all about, especially this year. Raising our capacity for the interior formation the interpersonal peacemaking, and the institutional change that ushers in the better world. We talk about why love is a better fuel than hatred and anger to move us in the direction of repair. And then we close the conversation with a really provocative question, and that is, what kind of peacemaker do you want to be this year? So in a world that's going to be divided by difference and by discord, especially in this you're marked by an election season. I invite you to listen in. And then I invite you to subscribe to this podcast because this is just a taste of what we're going to be bringing you all year long. Here's the conversation. Hey, man, really excited to spend a little bit of time with you here tonight, obviously considering the legacy of Dr. King. And I was asked recently, how are you feeling about the new year? And, and I think for the first time in my life, I'm like, man, I'm really struggling to to grasp a hold of some optimism, you know, like I think making a conversation like tonight feels super relevant to me because I think about the era in which Dr. King lived and loved and led and the resilience that he had to have when hope was probably dying all around him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then I'm also, I had a moment this year sitting on the steps of Dexter Ave Baptist Church, you know, under the shadow of the Confederate White House and the Alabama, you know, State House. And just thinking like, man, this bro was a human being. I mean, I walked the pilgrimage between his church and his home a couple of times, just thinking about like, what did he, what did Dr. King as a human being, um, what was his makeup? What did his formation look like? Cause this was as spiritual and formational as it was structural for him, you know? Yeah. And so I'm excited to explore some of that stuff with you. And then of course I'm, yeah. On, on social media on a day like today, you know, I watch so many people invite us to move beyond quoting Dr. King to actually living what he said. And I think the same could be said about a more legitimate Jesus. There's a lot of quoting and there's not enough living and embodying. And, um, and I, I'm curious about some of that stuff too. But anyway, bro, I'm, I'm all those thoughts right now and, and few in the world I'd rather talk to about them than you, especially on this day that commemorates the leader and the peacemaker, the freedom fighter, the Dr. Mm-hmm. King. So brother, tell us how you are. And for those of us who aren't familiar with you, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a backdrop in terms of who you are and, you know, and why you're here talking about Dr. King's legacy on a day like today. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I appreciate kind of the invitation even approaching him, approaching his day, approaching ourselves for more of a human perspective. 
I actually was a super shy kid. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but yeah. I was a super shy kid. I didn't like to talk in front of people. At church, they used to, you know, ask me, hey, come up, say something in front of the church, you know, with all the kids. I was so terrified. I would crawl underneath the bench. That's no how way. afraid of public speaking huh. I was. And the words that actually unlocked my ability to start talking in front of people was my dad had me memorize the I Have a Dream speech from the uh, Washington. Wow. And those were the words that unlocked my inner whatever to try to find a way to hold on to some freedom. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, my background coming out of San Francisco, third of six children, background of doing pastoring, peacemaking work, violence reduction work. I had a real thick season in my life where I was engaged in a lot of activism and a lot of community organizing. Got a chance to be on the ground floor of the beginning of the movement for Black Lives back in 2013, 2014. And I think, you know, I'm still struggling sometimes to find language to describe where I am now in the story. And I don't see it as a bad thing. I just think that I've arrived at a place in the story where some of the quick labels don't fit as comfortably. I still care as much as I ever have about justice, about how do we really do the work of creating a world that's big enough for everybody. And yet I'm wrestling with how do we really talk yeah. about that? It, by saying, hey, I'm an activist, that I'm like, no, nah, I get active. You know, I'm an organizer. Nah, I organize. You know, I'm a motivator. I, well, I, hopefully I motivate. But I think I'm wrestling, I think, as you talked about, I, I just want to figure out what does it mean for me to be faithful? And I want to try to do what I'm supposed to do to leave this world a little better than what I found it. Mm. And I think at the heart, that's what Martin or ML, as his homies called him, I think that's what he was trying to do. And, you know, on days like today, I just keep reflecting on something Dr. Cornell West said, which he said, in America, we need to resist the Santa classification of Martin Luther King Jr. Come on. Where we yeah. kind of turned him into a demigod who was not touched by humanity, who wasn't afraid, who had all the right answers. Yeah. And I just don't know that was the case. I actually think that ML, as his friends called him, was probably a lot more like us. And I think that can give us some inspiration to think about how we respond in the moments that have found us. They're very different and at times very similar to the world he was in. But I think we've got to think about what it did mean for us to be faithful outside of titles, outside of virtue signaling, outside of performative behavior. How can we be faithful in trying to leave this world better than we found? I love that. I mean, like I'm struck by, I, I think I'm struck by the notion that in this moment in time, I feel the need to be liberated from this notion, like the Santa Clausification or this, like, if it's not sensational, we're not doing it. Cause like all I've got the capacity for right now, honestly, mm. in my world, especially since October 7th and the atrocities in the Middle East is like, I've got the capacity to do what is the next right thing. That's it. So I, one of the questions I actually want to wonder with you about is like, how do you think Dr. King would function in a world that it seems to be more prone, and even in the justice world, more prone to like platform building and image management than doing the next right thing as well as possible? You know what I'm saying? Like I, I do, because, yeah. because I do think that he, like, 
peace be upon him, his memory is still being like disseminated in a social media kind of clickbait, quotable kind of way. And it's like, how do you think he would have functioned in a world where like you could do this kind of stuff? You know? Yeah. And you know, I think Dr. King in our moment would probably be a lot more like he was the last year and a half of his life. There's a great book called, oh, it's over there on my bookshelf. I think it's, it's by Tavis Smiley. And it really, it, it unpacks the last mm. year of Dr. King's life. A lot of heartbreak. He was contending for nonviolence, contending for love at a time when a very righteous black power movement was arising. I found this old video before where it's like grainy and he's out in the field somewhere and it's dark and he's given this kind of impromptu speech. And what he's saying is, you know, I'm tired of hatred. I'm tired of supremacy. I'm tired of such and such. And he says, like, I don't want it no matter who's offering it. He says the answer to white supremacy is not black supremacy. It's beloved community. And there's this sense when I watch him, you listening to what the archivists and people said about his last year was that while he was becoming even more radicalized within himself around, we really got to do something to change this world. He was also, it seemed, deeply disturbed about how easily we as human beings, because of the anxiety we were feeling, and the fact that change takes too long, we're beginning to sign up and sign off on believing that the world can only be better if violence is a ready tool that we use to engage right. people who are different. And I think in that way, like we, we like to remember Dr. King because I think he reminds us of how we want to be. And then we have moments where we're viewing somebody like Donald Trump, who's probably showing a little bit more of who we actually are. And I think mm. the challenge is how do we reach for spiritual imagination that Martin had when we feel so under threat of losing a democracy, people feel very unsafe, rightfully so. These are things people are making up in their mind. Queer folks feel unsafe, yeah. Muslims feel unsafe, Palestinians feel unsafe. Jewish sisters and brothers feel unsafe. Black folks been feeling unsafe for the last 400 years. A lot of people are struggling with what it means to be safe. And I think the challenge is, how do I hold that real fear without not turning into the very thing that I yeah. abhor? But I think, it's, I think it's more difficult than quotables and speeches yeah. and cute books and all of that. I think it's, it's a real primal thing that we're yeah. wrestling with. Yeah. And this is what I want to get to with you. Like, I want to talk, I want to talk spiritual because there's a, there's such a component of that to his life, to your life, to our lives. I want to talk interpersonal, this concept of beloved community and belonging, which is such at the, at the center of your book, Troubling the Waters, which I want you to speak into here. Cause I actually feel like, I feel like the structural, which is the third part, I, I like social transformation. I think was in his purview, but the deeper I go into the life of Dr. King, like there was, and I don't know if there was a chronology, if maybe more of a synchronization of the spiritual formation, interior cultivation, the interpersonal development in terms of like, we actually need each other across difference, not just my buddies. We like need each other to co-create the world that we're dreaming of. And then there are the structural organizing and systemic renovation and replacement that needs to happen. 
But I think in that middle one, the interdependence in beloved community and radical belonging, as you've so eloquently coined it in your book, I feel like that's the underlooked piece. Like I'm watching us in the justice movement right now. I think there's a major movement toward like the contemplative interior. And I think that's critical. Um, I'm also an Enneagram 8 who says yes, and it's a means to an end. <laughs> you know, so I don't want to camp here. And ultimately, I have these visions along with others around what social transformation looks like and the world that we're dreaming of. I think the thing that's really underlooked right now is exactly what you're talking about in Troubling the Waters and this notion of radical belonging or Dr. King's vision of beloved community. How do you understand King's notion of beloved community and who did he include in that? And I even wonder if you could help us with what you know too around like, how did he embody that? Because I don't think it was just a vision that he cast. Like we need to be an interdependent, interconnected relationship, mutually beneficial. I think even like mutually accountable, not just with people with whom we already agree, but people with whom we fundamentally disagree on some stuff. You know, will you talk to us about that a little bit from your understanding of King's legacy in that work and how it's actually shaped your perspective and message and leadership right now in terms of radical belonging? Well, I'll tell you. The things that have been most powerful to me have been the real blessings I feel like I've had with being able to listen to the stories that King's contemporaries told about him that aren't in the speeches. Because the stuff in the speeches are bellowing and it's, he was a wonderful speech writer and orator. And so, you know, we could talk about, you know, the governor of Mississippi whose words are tripping with the words of interposition and nullification. And many of us are still trying to figure out what interposition and nullification. Even still don't know what that means. Yeah, it sounds really great. But the, I think one of the stories that resonates with me most, you know, I was at this gathering probably about four or five years ago at this point. Andrew Young mm -hmm. was there, who was one of the right hands to Dr. King, along with many others. You know, light-skinned brother from New Orleans came from a little bit more of a higher class within the Black community. So he had a certain situatedness, you know, in his approach, but got a chance to listen to Ambassador Young talk about his experience. And he tells this story about when they had just confronted a lot of these racist white folks in the South. They come home, go over to one of the sisters' houses who was making dinner for him because you couldn't go to restaurants because of segregation and the apartheid system. And he says, we're all out there talking about, man, these white folks, this, these white folks, that, man, these. And he was like, you know, we took a little step beyond just the white folks. He was like, man, these crackers and whoop, whoop, yeah. et cetera. He's like, you know, we're venting, right? Holy so, because we just had this tough moment. He said, Dr. King came out and said, can I say something? And he said, they were like, all right, yeah, go ahead, Martin. Like, what you going to say? Like, you know, and he said, you know, white people are no more inferior because of their racism, then we are superior because of our ability to see it. He said, we were both born into an unjust story. He said, now, it's our responsibility to keep pursuing our liberation. But as we do it, we need to make sure that we do it in a way that we don't actually carry a kind of hatred into the future that then causes us to start behaving in the ways in which that they're acting with us now. So he said, we got to pursue our liberation. And here's the reality. They're going to be liberated as we liberate ourselves. We're not doing it for them, but we do need to recognize that in the way in which we do it, they also will experience that. Here's what I drew from that story was that in the quiet times and the conversations where it mattered, he was contending with his friends for, hey, y'all, I feel you. 
But the question is, in community, how do we not go over the edge? I love it because it's over fried chicken and cornbread, fatigue, irritation, real stress. Folks have just done some real trauma. And in the context of community and friendships, they're contending for, well, who do we need to be in this moment? And we have a right to be pissed off, but how do we want to show up? To me, the biggest teaching of that is, I feel like Dr. King was able to hold on to a certain ethic, not because he was some saint or some angelic demigod. I think he held on to it because he was in community with other people that he was wrestling with this. And I got to imagine there's got to be some stories we haven't heard where he came in and was like, yeah, man, these crackers, they owe my nerves. And probably somebody had to say to him, hey, Martin, like, hold on, like, you know, come on, so on and so forth. Right. The only reason we have the dream speech at the March on Washington is because he's uh, actually giving his I have a plan speech. I mean, that was the name of it. But in essence, he was laying out an organizing strategy for these several hundred thousand people there. And Mahalia Jackson is pulling on his coat saying, Martin, tell him about the dream. A lot of people don't know the dream speech he gave earlier that year in Detroit. And she was like, stop telling them about the plan. Tell him about the dream. And she was doing that as he was about to take the podium, wasn't she? No, she was doing it as, as he was talking. As he was talking. Yes. You could hear what is it. Latina took to that was in West Side Story. I'm blanking on her name, but I'm looking at it right now. She tells the story about sitting right next to Sammy Davis Jr. While she watches Mahalia Jackson start tugging on him while he's talking. And, and, and it, she's going, tell him about the dream. You know, like, and so this notion, we have a miracle because Martin was in community with people that could say, nah, don't go that way. And then there was moments where he could say to people who he was in community with, no, not that way, go that way. And I think if we're going to deal with the tough moments we have, it's going to be because we are really in relationship with people, each other, and are willing to try to help each other along the way, because I do think the temptation in moments like this is to come up with a plan and a strategy. And, you know, Jerry, I've told folks for good or bad, you know, maybe somebody needs to call me on the carpet, but I've told folks, I don't want to come to any more meetings with these little six month, 12 month, 18 month plans because I've done that. And I don't have the sense that's actually meeting the moment that we're in. We need to start planning and organizing and being in community with each other around what we really need in our country, not what we think we can get and what will give us the cathartic relief that we want to feel better. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I think the role of community in Martin's life and many of the other people who were as influential as he was in, in their own different ways, I think them being in community and playing the role that they did that's really how we got to this sense of belonging. I think that's how he was able to hold on to it during some really difficult scenarios. So give us, just to put you on the spot a little bit, because I know that, you know, in, in our, our friendship, there have been moments where you're like, I'm ready, I'm ready to be done with that group or with these people. And I feel the same way. Like, I think it's in, in the work of peacemaking, conflict transformation, there are moments of just utter fatigue with yeah. people, individuals, groups, whatever it is. How has King's legacy around remaining like the resilience, relational resilience in those moments? Tell us a story about what that's been like for you. Like when you've been ready to mm-hmm. give up, but you recognize that to give up is 
probably to disqualify us, you know, or to suspend the momentum or whatever it is, you know, and yeah, g- give us a story if you would. Yeah, it's like, it's like that quote from Dr. King's speech where he said, if you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. Yeah. He said, you know, do whatever you got to do, but just keep moving. I mean, for me, I think there's been moments where, you know, I, I've struggled to try to figure out how to find my place in the struggle for a belonging and beloved community. I've sat in rooms, like I, I remember 10 years ago, sitting in rooms where it was actively being discussed on the table whether we should engage with killing police officers as a way to manage and build enough power to try to bring about peace. I remember sitting in those rooms and being like texting, you know, different people who are sitting across the table like, yo, like we are actually, you know what I'm saying, off the range right now. You know, we need to rail this in. But then I've also had moments where my own anger was burning so hot that certain people was like, yo, I got to lay back from being like being talking out. You know, I don't know if we could go that route. You know, I've had moments where there's been, you know, I remember having moments where, you know, there's some organizational transitions and different things that, that I needed to do as a part of the movement work and experiencing what it meant to be called out. And from my vantage point, being attacked by folks who are criticizing your leadership, calling, questioning your character. What I found is that, you know, and what anchored me is trying to keep more focus around what it is that we're really trying to do and trying to be sober with the fact that the world that we need to change will not change in our yeah, lifetime. Yeah. And so this, to me, this is the, this is what continues to anchor me and also create the opportunity for me to recognize that I could change my role or my position at different times because this struggle that we're in is not going away over the next 20 to 30 years. It can certainly get worse over the 20 to 30 years, or it could get better over the next 20 to 30 years. And so what I've tried to commit myself to do is to try to have some awareness around what do I believe is my best offering in this moment? How can I be sober enough to recognize that I can't do the same thing forever. I can show up in different ways at different times. And I have to balance that with what it means to be a father and be a husband and be a friend and be a son. Because real life is happening while the world is falling apart as well. And I've just had to hold on to that piece where sometimes being in the movement actually meant stopping and taking a break. Like that was actually what I needed to do as a resilient strategy in order to stay involved. Right. Can you say, Ben, can you say more on that piece? Because I like, I still think that too many of us are like, we got to just keep grinding. And I wonder if the grind is connected to a sense of urgency that like the world is literally going to change in my lifetime. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, Jer, I think I will say something about resilience. I I think the reason some of us, now I want to project onto others can engage in that way is because I don't know that we signed up for making a contribution to the world changing without needing to reap the benefits in our lifetime. I think, mm-hmm. we, I think we need to abandon this notion that I'm going to make the world as it should be in my lifetime. Because in that orientation, then of course I'm going to grind, I'm going to grind, I'm going to grind because I am holding this reality that I've got to see the fruits of my labor in my lifetime. The only reason you and I are on an Instagram right now as a white dude and a black dude having a conversation about this, and you and I have had the chance to go around the world in different places and around the country, is because we are standing on the foundations that people laid 50, 60 years. 
So why do we think that we're going to be the ones that close this out and pay the check instead of us laying down 50 to 60 years of more foundation that future generations will be able to inherit it and then continue to build a better world? So to me, resilience means we have to take care of ourselves as we are doing the work to take care of the world around us, right? Coming from the words of Jesus, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? The invitation is also to love yourself and think about how do you love your neighbor? How do you love yourself? And then from that, how do you also think about what it means to love your enemy? Like this invitation of yourself, your neighbor, your enemy is all in one dance that's needing to happen together. And I think when we try to divorce that from ourselves and say, well, I I can give a damn about my enemy or I can give a damn about my neighbor. I'm just going to focus on me. That's all. I'm just going to focus on me and my neighbor. That's all. I'm just going to focus on me and my enemy. That's all. Me, my neighbor, and my enemy. We got to be co-creating together. And that means sometimes I got to take a step back to take care of myself. Other times I'm leaning forward to take care of my neighbor. Other times I'm really being challenged to take care and be in relationship with my enemy. But I got to think about doing that. One more thing I think that we got to really be careful about as it relates to resilience is I think there's a temptation, particularly for those of us that see ourselves on the left, that you feel like you just have to be more angry. Like it's mm-hmm. almost sense that if I'm not angry enough, then I'm not, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not proving to others that I care. If I'm not angry enough, I'm distracted. If I'm not angry enough, then like something's wrong. And I want to invite us to reflect on that. You know, I am super angry about all of the injustice that's happened in the world, not just in Gaza, but also across the continent, also across South America and Central America, also across parts of Southeast Asia and mainland China. I'm upset about all of the othering and pain that's happening in East Oakland, that's happening in Flint, that's happening down in Mississippi where they can't get water in Jackson, that's happened to our relatives at the border. There is a lot to be angry about in this world. But I think we should challenge ourselves to not see anger as the only source of power to make the world different. I want to call it to see love. How can we redeem the idea that love is the most powerful force in the universe? And I'm going to give you a quick example. Because, you know, I used to be super tapped into all my anger, right? We were at the state capitol in California, Sacramento, and I had everybody doing a die-in on the floor of the where all the state representatives are. So I got hundreds of people up there. Yeah. And so everybody lay on the ground. You represent all the people that's been killed by the police. And so I'm revving everybody up and I'm pissed off, right? So I'm revving them all up. And I said, I want you to call out the names of all the people that you've lost to police violence. And people are crying. Like, as I think about it, I feel like I was traumatized again. Like people are, now part of it was necessary lament. It was remembrance. It was necessary. And they were calling out you know, who they had lost and their pain. And then another pastor, Damien, who was brand new to the space. He had been around. And I, and I thank him for this moment. I'm going to have to text him because I don't think, think he remembers this moment, but I remember it. And he said, Ben, I appreciate you inviting us to tap into those, uh, why we're here with the pain we have. He said, but I haven't lost anybody mm-hmm. to police violence. He said, but I'm thinking about my sons and I don't want to lose them to police violence because I love them. So I want to invite everybody to think about who you love and how does that love invite you to show up? How does that love become the fuel for us? It's a different way to come to the story, to ask ourselves, not what am I mad about, but actually who do I love? What do I want this world to look like? 
And how do I start engaging because of love? Man. Not because of rage. Bro, that is laying down exactly what I think I need to hear at the minute. As someone who is seething with anger at the moment and holding on to love, but not feeling it, like not, I, you know, and so like in moments, Ben, where, and it's actually important for me to develop a relationship with anger because I think too many of us, especially in my social location, in an evangelical space have been saying like, it, what's ironic is like, we will adamantly defend the lethal anger of God, but it's not okay for us to be, you know, it's weird. Mm. So there's a cultivating relationship with anger, but there is this, like if my peacemaking work is fueled by anger, I think it's slanted juice. I don't mm. think it's sustainable. I don't think, I wonder if the bridging into that relationship, if it's fueled by anger, am I trying to conquer rather than serve, to understand, to love deeply? And so I'm curious when you have found yourself in moments where like the heat of anger is more the juice than the salve of love, what do you do in those moments to make sure that the impulse is love? Oh, my better days, I would say I am trying to reroute my anger to be about the problem and about behavior, not about people. Come on. Okay. So what I want to figure out is, okay, I am pissed off going back to a story that was super traumatic for many people in the Bay Area where I live in 2016 when the Oakland police, who I had been bridging with, it came out that they had been actively raping a young Latina teenager, a child, yeah. right? And I, you know, I'm sitting at the table with these cats. My, my temptation was to become angry at the people to the point. And to me, anger with people, I think is all right. But to the point where I began to, in my mind, say that they're just irredeemable. Mm -hmm. These people are outside yeah. the reach of yeah. change, of transformation. And you know, Glenn Stockton's work, you know, because I heard more of it from you and others, you know, over the last decade or so. We start moving down what he talks about, that chain That's of dehumanization. Right. And now I'm like, this person is not irredeemable. Not only do I not need to listen to them, I should take away their rights. Mm -hmm. Not only do I need to take away their rights, maybe I remove them from community. Maybe I even kill them. That Maybe yeah. that's necessary. But if I can focus my anger on the problem, on behavior, mm -hmm. on systems, but they remain soft on people when I say that doesn't mean letting people off the hook. Right. But it means that I leave room in my heart to recognize that every human being is redeemable mm. as I hope to believe that I am. Yes. Right. It's keeping in mind that all of us who think that we woke and got some woke juice and you got all the right answers and you don't want to tell everybody something. Can we all be humble enough to recognize that probably 10 years ago, you weren't where you are today. 100%. And 15 years ago, you weren't where you are today. And 25 years ago, you probably were saying and doing some stupid yeah. stuff yeah. and making the world less safe. So I think a part of it is, is how do we learn how to operate your language? Let's get a relationship with our anger, but let's not allow the anger to consume us it's so much to the point that it actually kills yeah. the love that needs to fuel our willingness to see human beings as redeemed. That's super insightful because that, that I think that is the difference between anger and love in terms of the juice of this restorative work is anger actually seduces us into the dehumanizing work. 
like I'm angry at you. And then I start to make up stories in my head about who you are and why you are, you know, and then I begin to fabricate more fables about where you belong and why the world is better without you, you know, and whereas love says, and I think this is the essence of the contemplative work, the the spiritual work is like, if I don't find a way to embrace my belovedness on a daily basis, I'm going to consume you in order to achieve my belovedness. That's going to be an act of violence, mm. right? But if I, in my waking moments, do whatever I need to do to embrace the reality that I am beloved by God, and if I am, so are you, so is my other, so is my irritant, and so is my enemy, mm. then that actually means that the behavior sucks, but like you are divine image yes. of God. Yes. You know? And that's, that is tough. To me, that's why we all talk about this becoming work, because that's the work that we need to be doing within ourselves. Yes. While we also lean to do the work that's outside it. of ourselves to challenge this world to be better. But this notion that we get to just sit our internal work on the side. And I'm with you. I feel like evangelicalism has over experienced the internal work. It's just like, I'm just going to work on myself. I'm yeah. going to pray. And then God's going to go do something outside of me and this building. Yeah. and my practices. But again, I don't think that we need to swing the pendulum all the way to another end where I don't need to be reflective. I don't need to do my internal work because when we stop seeing people as divine, as sacred, which I think is happening in our moment, it goes beyond just our personal ways that we show up. We start taking on a tribal way of thinking about as well, what that leads into John Meacham was talking about, I saw on the news the other day, what he called, I love this word, reflexive partisanship, where at this point, like partisanship is fun. Like we all come from different places and we don't see the world in different ways. But we get to this point where not only do I think you're the enemy, but I think anybody who is like you is the enemy. And now I'm not even listening to any of you all. I'm willing to throw away thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Because I have gotten to a point where I have bought in that the only way for me to reduce the anxiety I feel about racism, injustice, genocide, marginalization is to kill other human beings. And I think that if anybody is going to be, even if that means dying on the vine, to contend for nonviolent transformation and redemption of this world, it's supposed to be the people that say they follow the Palestinian Judaism Come on. side of the Roman Empire. Or else, here's my thing, bro. We should just stop campaigning on his get down. Totally. I, totally, man. Like, And this is the dovetail I want to make with you here in, in maybe some closing talk. It's like, there's our analysis is that we are a fuseless society mm. right now. I don't know very many people who are asking questions about how do I bridge across difference? I, most people that I'm interacting with right now are like, I, I don't even want to deal with difference. Right, right. Right. And so in this political era, then we actually think that the only way forward is to build power and win. Mm-hmm. And it, what's crazy is that we think that winning in winning, we're going to usher in the more beautiful way, mm-hmm. but in winning, we're actually we're like to, it's to break with the tradition of the nonviolent generative way of Jesus. And we become the very thing that we're seeking to fight against, you know? So like, I'm with you in this, like, I, this is a moment for me in 2024 where it's like, we're actually going to follow an enemy loving cross wearing God that we see in Jesus, 
or not, or we're just going to be done. And we're just going to say this whole Western Christendom thing is actually a cultural reality. Mm-hmm. It's not actually a faith because the cultural reality that says win at high cost to others, not only is it not a faith that's worth my life, it's an illegitimate, re- it's, it's, it in no way is congruent with Jesus. Well, it, so this passage is all my mind because I just, you know, was hanging out with the First Press Berkeley folks yesterday. And I was talking about Zacchaeus and I've never thought about Zacchaeus in, in the Luke, I think it's Luke 19 narrative, right? But here to me is the power of it. Zacchaeus is the enemy of enemies. He's the guy that is selling out the Jewish people yeah. who are living in an occupied Roman imperial experience. And here's the thing, bro. Jesus seek an invitation to his house. Yeah. Come on. He's, doesn't tell Zacchaeus to, why don't you start coming over here where me and all the kingdom-making people are hanging out? Why don't you come over here? He says to Zacchaeus, I actually want to come to where you hang out, right? And I am challenging myself to think about, and again, I'm not saying this as a panacea because everybody don't have to do the same thing. But to me, the question is, in moments like 2024 that's coming, what are the choices that we're going to make if we believe that even the people who it feels like believe the most dangerous, horrible stuff, and maybe they don't believe the most dangerous, horrible stuff. Maybe they're somewhere in the middle around, maybe it's not the most dangerous, horrible, but it's pretty awful from where we sit. What would it look like for us to actually host a room and seek an invitation to be in relationship with them? Not agreement of what they're saying, not affirmation of their beliefs, but what does it mean for us to at least keep some space to think about how I can hold on to relationships rather than me taking the bait yeah. that's going to be out there that actually says that some of God's children and creation are actually not yeah. God's children and creation at all. And John Powell said on his podcast I was listening to the other day, he said, the question of years ago used to be, am I my brother's keeper? He said, the question now is, am I my brother's brother? Like, ooh. Do we even believe that we are related to each right. other? And if that's the case, man, it's got to inform yeah. our choices. Man, and that's like that, that is, that's super pointed because I'm looking at, here we are. I mean, 2024 has dawned. This is a year marked by what could be the most divisive election yeah. season in the history of the American project, you know, and it could get violent. And, you know, so, so much of our organization's work right now is, training folk in light of much of what you've been saying to us throughout the years, especially right in Troubling the Waters, training folk to bridge ideological difference into relationships with people with whom you disagree. One of the challenges that we're finding is that like people no longer believe that you can be in relationship with someone with whom you disagree. And, and so the, I think the scripture that you just bring up, Zacchaeus, there's not too many folk in the Jewish bloodline who Jesus probably more adamantly disagreed with in terms of his ethic, his theology and his ethic than the wee little man in a sycamore tree, you know? And here Jesus is positioning himself, getting proximate to that and actually doing it in a way that cultivates a relationship that liberates Zacchaeus. You know, for me, and this is, I think this is a challenge for those of us who are listening now to the recording of this, like it's too late to wait like November's too late right now. Yeah. In January, what we need to be 
doing, in my view, is asking ourselves this question. This comes from our, my sister, Ashita Moore, who says that our enemy is anybody who lives beyond the reach of our oh. empathy. Get, oh, wow. Well, that's that great. Real? Like, our enemy is anybody who lives beyond the reach of our empathy. That's the, so my enemy is not necessarily somebody who is exacting violence against me. It's the person who, if something bad happened to them, I wouldn't care that much. Mm, that is really good. That's my enemy. Mm. Who is that? For us who are li like, we have to be determining right now who is that person or who is that people group? And we have to be actually building real-time strategy to get into real relationship with those folks. And and 1,000%, Jared, and I want to speak to this notion really quick and say, you know, the reason we don't believe is possible is because we have not gotten proximate. So we don't have any experiences. We don't have practices that force us to actually believe something different. You remember when we were trying to do something around the gun violence work, there was a reason we did the night walks every Friday. It was to continue to build the belief yes. that we can yeah. be in relationship with people who are shooting guns in the community and yeah. killing other human beings. And then I'll tell you, man, and I'm not trying to be on my soapbox, but it kills me with some of us on the left say that we don't believe that there is a way for us to bridge with people on the right who are saying terrible things, and then they will turn around and affirm me for bridging with loved ones who were actually killing yeah. people in the neighborhood. Yeah. So if I could walk through the kill zone at night, if I could put my hands in a bloody wound of somebody who was bleeding out, if I could be in relationship with people who had pistols in their pocket, you mean to tell me that I can't dig into that same bucket yeah. of courage and be in a conversation yeah. with somebody that has more to say? And I'm not trying to be judgmental, bro, but I'm, I am speaking righteously from my heart. Yeah. That has more to say about our lack of faith. That's right. In this moment, not what's actually happening yeah. in the world. And so I, I'm like, you know, in, in whatever ways that that is true for me right now, like I, I'm saying as I'm looking at this phone, I'm like, Oh, Lord, help yep. my unbelief. Yes. Do something in me because yep. like, you've done it in me before. I've been able to bridge with Pookie. I've bridged with the police. So why in the world can I not bridge yeah. with someone who has a different ideological yep. orientation than me? Let it not be said, man, that that we, you know, and I'm not trying to be on some like hegemonic supremacist with those of us who are Christians, but I do think we have a mandate to show up in this world with a certain kind of ethic. 100%. I mean, Jesus, the legitimate Jesus that I think we're talking about here is the only one that ever took anybody beyond neighbor love to enemy love. It's not a suggestion. Yet. And in the words of Samuel Wad, who you and I have sat with him a couple of times, if I'm gonna love my enemy, I must first understand yes. my enemy. And if I'm gonna understand my enemy, I must first get close to them, mm -hmm. right? And so again, to those of us who are listening in, enemy again, may not be a person who is enacting some kind of violence yeah. on you. It's the person who, if something bad happens to them, you don't care that much. Yeah. That's the person that Christ actually compels us to get close to so that we can understand, so that we can love tangibly. One thought here that I'd love to kick around, he was like, I, but I also have to do this in a way that doesn't live a faulty ethic of domination and conquering, right? Because I can get close to my enemy, the person with whom I disagree, to convert them 
or to convince them of the superiority of my thoughts or of my ethic. That's just domination in another format. What if we actually got close to so that we could understand so that we could love our enemy with a belief that in that relationship, I'm actually found informed by God. Like I'm the one being transformed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's back to some of your, to me, what you're parsing out is the spiritual work that has to happen alongside the political work. It's the cultural work that has to happen alongside yep. the structural work. Yes. Because if we have gotten to a place in our own consciousness of such arrogance that we feel like if people would just apply everything that we believe in our brain and we've got it all figured out, even though you've never traveled around every part of this country, you'll know what it feels like to live in this kind of community versus this kind of a community. If we think that we've got all the answers and we don't need to actually be bridging with others across difference to figure out how to wind in circle of human concern, that fits everyone, particularly those that disagree with us the most, then I think we've been misled. Mm-hmm. To me, that's why the call for radical belonging is centrally about co-creating with the perceived other. Come on, man. To widen the third. And if it's not, here's my, if it's not that, no, it's not radical. No, no, it, you know what it is? It's just comfort. Like, like, it was Jesus that said, like, what faith is it for you to love the people who love you? Like that, that doesn't take any faith, right? So the notion is, do I have the willingness to imagine a circle that's big enough? That doesn't mean that the people who I am most not like, and I have the deepest disagreements and conflict with, that we need to be incredibly proximate with each other as we build what this circle looks like. There's some people that the way that they want to do life and the way that they want to do community is very different and disruptive for the way that I want to right. do it and vice versa. The question is, can we come up with a new social contract with each other? Right. That's about the reality that we're going to rub with each other because we came up very differently or we see the world very differently. But I am refusing to take away your humanity because of difference. Yes. Rather, I want to figure out how to create space for that difference, even if that difference requires distance. I'm going to get proximate so that we can be distant with each other at a certain point with some trust that when we are distant, we are not colluding towards the genocide of one another. Yeah. And so this is the work that has to happen over the next yes. hundred years because on the left, if we, and I'm not, uh, the reason I speak to the left, because I, you know, there I had different methods for the right. And when I'm speaking to the left, I'm speaking to myself. And my thing that I've said to those of us is if the only way that people are welcome into the circle of human concern and that they can be seen as human is that they have to become us. That is what the settlers did to the indigenous relatives. Yeah. That is colonization. It's colonization. That's what it is. So May it not be then. What is the point of going to the promised land if you will become Pharaoh on your sojourn? We will not dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Audrey Lord taught us that. There is a better way. And I'm not confident with what it is. I don't have the game plan. But, Jer, one of the things that I do know is that us being willing to challenge one another, be in community, and keep stretching across difference is what needs to happen. Last week, I was saying, toss it back to you is I would say this, we should be sober coming into this yeah. year. You, we're not going to fix it this year, okay? Like, we're not going to. Let's manage some expectations. Mm-hmm. It's going to get worse. Polarization is going to get worse because all of us are going to be feeling the anxiety. The question to me is, since I know that's coming, who do I want to be this year mm-hmm. as a peak man? How do I want to challenge myself that I am not going to become a caricature of Donald Trump? I'm not going to become a caricature of those and other. 
I'm not going to become a caricature of yeah. those that other on the left. Yeah. I am going to make a choice to be more like the prophetic Jesus of the scriptures that I read, who both tells the Pharisees that their father is the devil and at the same time speaks of the faith of the censorian. I'm going to make space for Nicodemus to come to me at night while at the same time showing up the challenge of the Sanhedrin. I'm going to seek to be like Jesus instead of trying to seek to be like one of these little modern day constructs that we have that won't give us what we need. Bro, that's that's the last word for this. Like, that's it. That's it. And, you know, so for those of you who are listening in this year, we're not going to avoid the mess. We need to become the people who walk into it with the tools to heal rather than to win. You know, so Ben, thank you for this time. This is everything that I needed. I know for many of us, this is what we all needed tonight is we not only remember the legacy of Dr. King, but we live it, man. Like we live this story. It's the better way, you know? So thanks for being with us, bro. Peace out. Ciao. Tearing down walls, building up the bridges between The Everyday Peacemaking Podcast is a production of Global Immersion and is made possible by our Embers community of monthly donors. Sincere thanks to the Brilliance for use of their song, Turning Over Tables. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion, forming everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders to mend divides at globalimmerse.org.